Mephibosheth is such a rich story about a traitor who is brought to eat at the table of the king like a royal son forever through nothing that he does but the sheer gratuitous mercy of the king. Sometimes I title this message the Hesed of the king. Hesed is a word in the Old Testament that means covenant faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. If you've ever uh, seen that word in the Old Testament, it's this word, this Hebrew word, Hesed. What is the Hesed of the king? And there are times when King David models well the Hesed of our true heavenly king. You understand, like the story of, of David is a very interesting one because there's a king before David in Israel, a guy named King Saul. And Israel doesn't have a king like all the other nations. And in 1 Samuel, you find that Israel wants to have a king like all the other nations. And they ask Samuel, the prophet, to give us a king, to ask God to give us a king like all the other nations. And what's interesting is God, when he hears of this request, recognizes that they've rejected him as their king. It's not just that they want a human king like all the other nations. They already have a king. And so they've rejected God as their king, and he gives them Saul, who's a disaster. He's a disaster. And then God raises up David, who from all earthly appearances is not the kind of guy you would you would pick to be your king. In the ancient world, they pick kings who will be champions and fight your battles for you. And Saul, it says in the Bible, is chosen because he is a head taller than anybody else in Jerusalem. He's an imposing physical specimen. He's the kind of guy you want on your side. And yet, when the chips are down, when Goliath is there, he's cowering, refusing to fight. And Brandon's going to preach about that story, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. Um, but now we get to this story of David. David eventually becomes the king. And there are times when you get just these beautiful pictures of what the true king's love is like. David is described by God himself as a man after my own heart. And yet there are other times when he does despicable things. It's, it's only a couple chapters after this story that we have the Bathsheba incident. So David, at times, pictures the true love of our heavenly king, but at other times shows that he himself needs the love of the heavenly king. But this is one of those stories that pictures so beautifully what the love of our king is like. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we find this story. And see how our true king loves traitors and helpless, weak people. David asks, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now Saul was the first king of Israel, first human king. And Saul had tried to kill David. Jonathan was Saul's son. And, Saul and or Jonathan and David had been great friends and had pledged not only their love to each other, to be friends, but they had also pledged to care for one another's families should anything happen 
to one of them. And Saul and Jonathan were both killed in a battle with the Philistines. And now David is king. And here he's answering, asking, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, Hesed, for Jonathan's sake? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, or probably Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness, God's hesed? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness, hesed, For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Megah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that this story would not just inform us, but it would transform us. That we would be richly encouraged by the way you love we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the first point I want to make from this passage is to look at the love of the true king and the way it's pictured in this story, particularly when we consider who it is who gets saved. And I use that word in particular, saved, because that's what Mephibosheth experiences. You need to understand that everybody in this culture would have accepted and expected that Mephibosheth would be put to death. One of the rules that sort of was, was the practice, and not just in the ancient world, but this goes on even you know, throughout the, the history of most of the kings and queens of Europe throughout the, the, uh, the centuries. One of the things, one of the ways that you consolidate your power when you become king, particularly if we're talking about a new family dynasty, is you kill off anybody 
who might be a threat to your kingdom. In particular, you kill off anybody who is from the house of the previous dynasty. Because if there is still left a blood heir of Saul, the previous king, then there exists someone who might become the basis of a coup in the future. At some point, if people become dissatisfied with David, then there will be people who will rise up, who will try to rally around this son of the house of Saul to, 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 to come against the house of David. And so to avoid that possibility, it was standard practice. Everybody knew it. Everybody expected it. It was standard practice to kill off all those who were part of the previous dynasty. And this actually um, was, you see this in the story. Now, I didn't have a chance to read this, but back in chapter 4, you find out how it is that Mephibosheth becomes crippled in both feet. And here's the story. When Saul and Jonathan are killed by the Philistines, word gets back to the palace in Jerusalem. And when the people at the palace in Jerusalem hear that Saul and Jonathan have been killed, panic erupts. Why? Because they expect David to come marching in and clean house. And so Mephibosheth, who is five years old at the time, the text tells us in 2 Samuel 4, he's five years old at the time, his nurse picks him up so that they can hightail it out of the palace, and the servant trips and drops Mephibosheth, this five-year-old boy, and from then on, he's crippled in both feet and he can never walk again. Why were they panicked? Because they expect David to come in and kill Mephibosheth. It's, it's the logical thing. It's what kings do. And you may think of David as this nice you know, guy that you'd love to have hanging around with you. He's really more like Braveheart. He's like a warrior chieftain. I know he plays the harp, right? So it's hard to keep both of those images together. But that's who he is, right? He's a dangerous man. Just ask Bathsheba's husband. He gets his way when he wants to. And you better watch out if you're in the way of that. Okay? So Mephibosheth is crippled because he was a threat to David's kingdom. But look at what David does. He says, look, is there anybody out there still from the house of, of Jonathan that I can show Hesed to? Covenant, faithful love. And what's fascinating about this story is David says, is there anybody from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then, you know, this guy Ziba keeps talking about, you know, there's, a house, there's somebody from the house of Saul. And, and on and on and on, it keeps emphasizing Mephibosheth is the son of Saul. It's like 2 Samuel 9 wants to make sure you get this point. This guy is from the house of the man who tried to have David killed. Do you remember the story? Saul would invite David to come in and to play the harp when he was kind of crazy. And you remember what Saul would do? He would chuck spears at him, trying to kill him. And eventually, he chases him around with an army trying to kill him and almost catches David. Okay? 
So this is the guy, the house of Saul. Which means this, one of the things that this story shows us is that the love of our king at times seems crazy, even reckless. And, and I want you to sit in, the, in, in that for a second. I think so often Christians, particularly self-righteous Christians who've been Christians a long time, um, really sort of get plagued by this thing. They feel that they have to protect God from insincere people and from people who may not be really great people to have on God's side. You know, Christians, religious people, at times are pretty critical of the kinds of people God wants to show love to. You see it all over the place in Jesus' ministry. People, religious people in particular, were always criticizing him for the kind of people he was hanging out with. They were criticizing him for the kind of people that he was welcoming into the fold. They criticized him for the kind of people that he welcomed with open arms. They said things like, doesn't he know who that woman is? Doesn't he know what she's like? If he knew what she was like, if he truly was a prophet, he wouldn't let her be touching him. And does the church still, still have the reputation of being people who follow a God who loves in such a seemingly reckless way? Or is the church in our day known as a place where only the cleaned up, respectable people need to come? Because the love of the true king is, is a love that often seems crazy and reckless. It's not a good idea for David not only to love this guy, but to have him brought into his house and to eat at his table. He invites the enemy right into the inner circle. Do you realize that's what the love of God is like? He takes traitors and enemies who could undo everything that he's working for, and he puts them in charge of stuff, and he makes them like his royal sons and daughters. Do you understand that? Don't, do not try to protest your unworthiness to this king who loves like this. Don't try to say to him, you don't really want me on your side. You don't really want me. I'm not trustworthy. I may mess things up for you and your kingdom. Well, duh, <laughs> obviously. But God seems undeterred by those sorts of protests. His love is often crazy and seemingly reckless. He invites people to sit and eat at his royal table like royal sons and royal daughters who don't deserve it, not only don't deserve it, but could do damage to his name and to his reputation. And I know that all of us struggle with that sometimes. We're like, why did God invite this person into his kingdom, into his family? Because I think they could really damage his reputation, and God doesn't seem to care. And you know what? It's good for you that he doesn't seem to care about his reputation as much as you do. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, like if God only invited safe people who he knew were trustworthy, none of us would be here. 
But the love of our king invites traitors who still pose a threat to his glory and to his kingdom, and he invites them to sit and eat at his table like royal sons and daughters forever. So that's the first thing that I think is just beautiful and amazing. The second is the king loves those who are sinners and those who are sinned against. Mephibosheth is a cripple. He's a helpless man. He's lame in both feet. And he's crippled because he's a victim, in some ways, of the sin of his grandfather. He's not just a traitor. He's not just part of the house of Saul. He's also somebody who suffered not as the result of his sin, but as the result of someone else's sin. Now, often Christians struggle with this, I find. They find it easier to think of themselves as sinners than to think of themselves as sinned against. But let me tell you, the church is full of people who are both sinners and sinned against. And the king loves those who are both sinners and sinned against. And so don't try to protest your lameness, your deformities, whatever they may be. It will not deter the king because the king loves both sinners and the sinned against. Mephibosheth is also a fugitive who's been in hiding. He lives in a place called Lodabar, right? He's hiding in fear. But here's the, here's the crazy thing. Uh, do you catch the irony of this? He's a man with royal blood in his veins who's hiding He's the only living heir of the once great house of Saul. But now he's in hiding. And I think, you know, what you see here is that the love of our king is a love for fallen kings and queens. Those who know that they were created for glory and greatness, but who suffer in a world of shattered dreams and broken promises. Can you imagine what it's like to grow up as Mephibosheth from the time you're five years old to know that you were destined for the throne, but it will never be yours, and it's because of something that you had no control over? And I know that we all struggle with this, whether you can put a name on it or not. Every one of you has been born into a world. You're born into a world from the lineage of King Adam and Queen Eve. Adam and Eve were created royal persons to rule in God's place. And all of their descendants, all of us sitting in this room, were made for greatness. But we live in a world full of shattered dreams and broken promises. And the love of our king is a love for people who are living in the midst of broken dreams and shattered promises. So if that's, if that's your hurt, if that's your brokenness tonight, take hope. The faithful covenant love, the hesed of the king, is a love that comes to those whose lives are full of disappointment and frustration.
he lives in Lodabar. Now that's interesting that it tells us that because Lodabar literally means the place of no pasture. There's a great verse in Isaiah that says that the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. See, Jerusalem is the place where God's people live. It's the place where God himself is and where he meets his people in the temple. But that's not where Mephibosheth lives. Mephibosheth lives in Lodabar, the place of no pasture. Not only that, his name, Mephibosheth, it's a strange name, isn't it? Particularly when you understand that it means a shameful thing. So he's a shameful thing who lives in the place of no pasture. But the Hesed, the love of our king, is a love who comes after people who are hiding and living in fear. The king loves those who are hiding and living in fear. Are you hiding and living in fear tonight? Are you afraid of what it might mean if the king calls you by name and invites you to sit down with him? Well, be, be aware. The king loves to come after those who are in hiding and insists that they sit down and eat at his table. I think as well, this guy has got to be fairly bitter towards David. I mean, he comes, he's brought from Lodabar. Imagine what he's thinking. We don't read of David telling him why he's being brought from Lodabar. We know that David wants to show him Hesed. But I don't think Mephibosheth knows. There's nothing in the text to indicate that. And then the first thing that he hears is Mephibosheth. And you know that he's expecting to die because when David says, you're going to eat at my table forever, what does Mephibosheth say? Who am I that you would recognize or honor a dead dog like me? He's saying, I'm as good as dead. I'm here standing in the court of the king, the king that my grandfather tried to kill. I've been hiding in Lodabar ever since, but he's found me. And he's brought me to his throne room to stand before him. And I know what's coming. And then he hears Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Can you imagine I can't imagine Mephibosheth not dissolving in tears. Have you ever sort of been in that situation where you felt like disaster was about to fall on your head and instead it completely turns around and, and you're just such a bundle of emotion that you just, you just can't even hold it together? That's the picture we have here of this guy, Mephibosheth. And what it teaches us, what it teaches us, as this guy Mephibosheth stands up and gazes at David, the guy who he's heard about, the guy who he's probably hated and seen as the one who has blocked all of his hopes and dreams. He stands there, he looks up into his face for the very first time, and he hears, don't be afraid, you're going to eat at my table forever. It shows us that the king loves those who hate him and who are deeply suspicious of him. If you think that being mad at God will thwart him and prevent him from pursuing you, I have, I have something to tell you. The king loves those who hate him and who are deeply suspicious of him and his ways. I mean, this is one of the central messages of the Bible. 
Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. This is Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? The king loves those who hate him and are deeply suspicious of him. It's good news. And so what we see here is just such such an amazing picture of the kind of people that get saved. Now, I, I put a couple quotes on here. I think what's interesting is, in so many ways, people in our day and age, out of the church, in the church, resist this picture because it's a pretty bleak picture. What, what this passage is teaching us is that the king loves those who are helpless, traitors, who hate him, are deeply suspicious of him, and who are a threat to his kingdom and his ways and his ways prospering in the world. That's the kind of people he loves. And we don't like that idea. A lot of people don't like that idea. Number one, they don't like that anybody would sort of be in that category. But, but what's, what's interesting is there have been a few people who have recognized that if you resist the truth about who mankind really is, it has radical implications. A lot of people hate the idea that God is a judge. But do you understand that if you reject the idea of God as judge, it does great damage to your sense of identity. If God doesn't judge, then all of a sudden the idea of meaning that is at the core of your question about who I am I and why do I matter and what am I here for, all of those questions get radically disrupted. So it may be comforting to get rid of the idea of God as judge and to say, well, you know, this is sort of this old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy religion to think that there are people who are traitors and who are bad and who are wicked. We need to get past those ideas. Those aren't helpful ideas. But to get past those ideas is to enter into this sort of morass where you don't even know who you are anymore. This guy Herbert Mowar, Herbert Mowar, this is interesting. He was a professor of psychology at Harvard, former president of the American Psychological Association, wrote in a magazine article this amazing quote. He got tons of letters attacking him for this. And then a few months later, he killed himself. But listen to the listen to these words. I I, I just admire this man so much that he would have the the audacity to say this. He says, for several decades, we psychologists have looked on the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus. Do you know what an incubus is? It's a mythological creature who sneaks in and steals children out of their bed and eats them. It's a bad thing. (laughs) So that's what he's saying. Like The idea of moral accountability and sin is this great incubus. And he says, we've declared our liberation from it as epic-making. Like the great thing that we psychologists have done have helped people get rid of these old-fashioned ideas about sin and moral accountability. But he says, at length, we discovered that to be free in this sense, to have the excuse of being sick rather than being sinful, is to also court the danger of becoming lost. For in becoming a moral, ethically neutral, 
and free, we have cut off the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? The point here is, who loves you enough to tell you the truth about who you really are? Even when it's not flattering. The king, King Yahweh, loves you enough to tell it to you straight. What else do we see in this passage? We see the beauty of salvation by God's sheer grace. I like how we see the picture of initiation here. Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar, and David has him brought. A.W. Pink, great um, Bible scholar, said, Praise God for bringing grace. He says this, Did David send a message of welcome inviting Mephibosheth to come to Jerusalem? Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he, quote, did his part, mercy would be accorded to him? Did David forward the cripple a pair of crutches and bid him make use of them and hobble to Jerusalem as best he could? No, indeed. King David had him brought from Lodabar. Thank God for bringing grace. Yes. God takes the initiative because of his love for another, and so does David. The passage makes it very clear. Don't miss this. David shows love to Mephibosheth because of his relationship to another one. It's because of the relationship David has with Jonathan that Mephibosheth benefits. Mephibosheth is safe because of the promise David has made, the covenant David has made with Jonathan. And this is what is at the heart of the gospel as well, guys. God the Father, God the Son, made an agreement that Jesus would live and die in the place of sinners and that God the Father would accept the death of Christ and the righteousness of Christ in their place. Therefore, there is hope for everyone within the sound of my voice. Not because you've impressed God or you could ever impress God. Your only safety is that God the Father and God the Son made a covenant together to accept the life and death of the Son in the place of sinners. This is at the heart of the gospel. We also see this, that God's love is a love for helpless enemies. In other words, the gospel is the great surprise ending. And then we see here as well a wonderful picture of the privileges the gospel brings. Let me tick them off for you quickly. He gets peace. When the gospel comes to you, it brings peace. Verse 7, the king says, fear not. He's called by name Mephibosheth because salvation is intimate and personal. He gets a place at the table. And if you remember anything that I have to say tonight, it's this. The heart of the gospel is that the king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his table like royal sons and daughters forever. Get that image in your head. I know, see, so often we think of the gospel in sort of merely Pauline terms, and there's nothing wrong with Pauline terms. It's great. The idea of justification and sanctification. That's why we did Romans in the fall. 
But it's also true that the gospel is relational at its core. And this is a beautiful picture of that. And if you can't get your heart around this, pray that God would help you. J.I. Packer said that you can basically tell, and J.I. Packer is a great theologian, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, and he said you can basically tell how well somebody makes, or how well somebody gets the gospel and understands the gospel by how much they make of the fact that they're God's son or God's daughter. If they don't make that, if that's not the animating thought behind their prayers, and their thoughts about themselves, they don't get the gospel very much at all. So the question is, does your heart resonate with this picture? If I asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? I would hope that you would say, it means that I've one of those traitors who's been made to eat at the king's table forever. Me, can you believe it? I get to sit at the king's table and eat with him in his presence forever. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that when I had no hope When I hated God, he said, sit at my table and eat with me forever, and I'm never going to let you go. That's what it means to be a Christian. Wouldn't you like to know a king like that? Look at this, too. He gets the inheritance that his family lost. That's that's sort of this fascinating little detail, and the chapter spends a few verses on it. So it's an important point to notice, at least according to 2 Samuel 9. David says to him, not only are you going to eat at my table... But I'm going to give you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather. And I'm going to give you these servants to work the land. He gets the inheritance that his family lost. And this is one of the great glories of the gospel. You don't just get in and get access to God. You become a co-heir with Christ. Talk about God just piling on blessings. It's not that you don't get death and hell. You get to be a co-heir with Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isaac Watts has this great line where he talks about how in the gospel we get more blessings than our father lost. Whatever Adam lost, however much you may mourn the fact that Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden, in the gospel you get more than they lost. If they had never sinned, they wouldn't be in as good and as solid a position as you are if you're in Christ. Because they would have had human righteousness. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A righteousness that Peter says is kept in heaven for you where you can never get at it to screw it up. Talk about security. Right? But then as the story goes on, we see something else that that I love. We see a powerful picture of how grace changes us. Now, I don't have time to read all this, but, but later in 2 Samuel, David again has to flee. He has to flee from his son, Absalom, who stages a coup against David. And David has to flee from Jerusalem. He's out running around, and there's a, a point where David uh, is near Jerusalem, And Ziba, the servant, goes out to meet him. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? Where's my boy? And Ziba says, he's back in the palace hoping that you're going to die and that somehow he's going to emerge as king. And David believes him. Later, after Absalom is killed, David comes into Jerusalem and there's Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, 
Ziba slandered me, and he lied to you. It wasn't that I was sitting in the palace hoping to be made king and hoping that you would die. What, I was, what happened to me is that Ziba didn't help me saddle up my horse and be able to get out there, or donkey, I guess, to get out there to see you. He left me here, and then he lied about me. And David has this dilemma. Who's telling the truth? I mean, he looks at um, Mephibosheth, and the text says there that it looks like he hadn't taken care of himself. He hasn't bathed. He hasn't washed. He hasn't cared for his feet. So it looks like he's been in mourning. And, and David's torn. Who's right? Who's right? I can sympathize because often you're, as a parent, you sort of have to ne- negotiate and figure out who's telling the right story. But here's what's fascinating. Here, here's what happens. If you have the, the passage, it's worth looking at. Um, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Here's the way uh, David comes to him, right? The king says, why didn't you come with me or come out to see me, Mephibosheth? And, and, here's what David's, and here's what Mephibosheth said. He said, my lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God. So do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him, Ziba, take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. What do you get from this? What you get is Mephibosheth can't get over the fact that he was a dead dog and he was made to eat at the king's table forever. What does he say? Like, he can't say three sentences without talking about what happened to him. What he deserved and what he got instead. And the longer he meditates on that and fills his hearts with that, it changes everything. To the point where he finally is brought to a place of saying, I don't care what I get. All I care about is that my king, that my king is alive and well. Do you want to get to that point? I mean, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. But how do you get to that place? You never stop rehearsing and remembering and rejoicing in who you were and what you got instead. That's what you sit in. You never get past the gospel. You never get over the fact that, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? If you ever cease to be amazed at that, you're in deep weeds. Mephibosheth sits in that. It's all that he can think about. It dominates everything. And it transforms him to the place where he says, not my kingdom, not my glory, not my comfort, but your kingdom and your glory, my king, is all that I care about. Right? His heart has been turned to the king for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And if you want to grow a heart like that, you never graduate from the gospel. You sit in the gospel, you remember it, and you rejoice in it. 
The last thing I'd say is, I think this gives us a great picture of the agenda that God has laid out for us. The promises of the king should set us free to love in a reckless way because that's the way the Lord loved us, right? Promises really matter to the king. It's at the heart of this story. David makes a promise to Jonathan, and he never backs down from that. And what I pray is that all of us would know that if we're in Christ, it's because God the Father made a promise and God the Son made a promise to each other and they're never going to back down from it. And out of that kind of security, we can love. I mean, it seems crazy to us, right? I mean, you guys are like 20, 21, 18, 19, in that range. I mean, people sometimes are like, I can't imagine ever getting married. I can't imagine being able to stand up at an altar and promise to love somebody till death does us part because who knows what the future will hold? Who knows? This person might change in huge ways. How can I make a promise like that? And what I always tell people is you make those kind of vows either out of naivete or great faith. The only way you can make those kind of vows is if you hear the Lord making vows to you to love you in sickness and in health for richer and poorer. And not just till death does us part, but his love is a love that's sealed by death and therefore can never be ended by death. That goes beyond the grave. It seems crazy to us to make promises not knowing what the future holds. But we know who holds the future. And we know that he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's good. His hands are strong. It sets us free to love in risky ways. My favorite stories about this is about General George Custer. Guys know about Custer. You know about Custer's last stand. What you may not know is that he also had a wife named Libby. There was one time when he hadn't seen her all summer long because he was out fighting uh, with the Native Americans. So he gathered up his men. He made them march for 55 hours, forced march, so that he could show up and surprise Libby. It killed two of his men, several of their horses because of the strain of the journey. He put his whole entire military career at risk. As a matter of fact, he was court-martialed and stripped of his rank and his pay for a year. The reason he went and fought the battle of Little Bighorn is because he was trying to earn his way back into the favor of his superiors. He risked everything just to see his wife. It's the craziest thing he ever did. But Libby wrote in her journal, for me, there was one perfect day when he showed up. That's, that's the kind of king you have who risks everything, who loves you in a way that it's hard to even get your heart around, who says, I don't care that you hate me. I don't care that you don't trust me. I want you to sit at my table and eat with me forever.
and we'll work it out. Just come be with me. Bring me your questions. Bring me your struggles. Beat on me with your fists if you need to. But sit with me. Eat with me. We'll work it out. Let's pray.